Welcome to Skim This. We're coming up on the last exit before Thanksgiving, our final chance to rethink plans for a big holiday gathering at a time when COVID cases in the U.S. are setting new records each day. The CDC is recommending Americans avoid traveling, and it's not hard to see why. Close to 80,000 people are currently hospitalized for COVID around the U.S. And by one estimate, 3 million Americans are infected right now. This week, we'll look at why this current COVID peak is even worse than the one this past spring. And if all this gloomy news makes you think twice about your holiday plans, we've gotcha. We talked to an expert about how to step into the role of top Thanksgiving chef if your plans change at the last minute. But first, we've got the latest on Amazon's big move this week into the world of prescription drugs and what's going down or isn't going down with the presidential transition. All right, let's do it. Our first developing story this week is about how the transition process is going between President Donald Trump and President-elect Joe Biden. Quick skim, it's not. Traditionally, after the election and before the inauguration, a handoff occurs between the outgoing and incoming administrations. Think of it like a changing of the guard, where a lot needs to happen in a couple months to kick off a brand new government. Things like appointing around 4,000 people to political positions in over 100 federal agencies, and making sure they can hit the ground running. And to do that, there has to be an agency review process. That's when members of the transition team and the new administration meet with people currently in the government to get the scoop on how to do the job right. Members of the new administration also have to be vetted and eventually get background checks. Not to mention, about 1,200 of these roles require Senate confirmation. To help us break down everything involved in turning a campaign into a new government, we talked to Christine Simmons. She's the Vice President for Government Affairs at the Partnership for Public Service, a nonpartisan nonprofit that focuses on what it takes to have an effective federal government. It's really, really exciting and complicated and important all at the same time. But here's the thing. The agency at the center of all this that's holding the process back is the General Services Administration or GSA. Congress vested the General Services Administration with the responsibility of providing services to a president-elect and a vice president-elect. And that dates back to 1963, believe it or not, when Congress said a, a disruption in the transfer of power could harm Americans and be detrimental to the safety of our country. So they said somebody has to be the, the custodian of resources and providing support for a new team. And we'll put it in the authority of the General Services Administration. Christine says the GSA is basically like the government's landlord. It does a lot of behind the scenes work that helps government agencies have what they need to do their job. As far as the transition team goes, that includes releasing millions of dollars of federal funding and hooking people up with government email addresses and even office space. But before any of that happens, the GSA has to provide what's called a letter of ascertainment. The word ascertainment, which few people really thought about, now has new, has new meaning and uh, is much more on the radar screen for Americans. But that's what that refers to. It's ascertaining the winner of the election. And, and it has not been much in the news until today. Basically, the head of the GSA, Emily Murphy, has to make the call that the election's over, we're having a transition. But Murphy is holding out, despite facing increasing pressure to let the Biden team start getting to work. 
A GSA spokesperson said last week that, quote, an ascertainment has not yet been made. And now, two and a half weeks after the election, Murphy's team is holding firm and saying, it's just following a precedent established by the Clinton administration in the year 2000. Quick refresher. That's a reference to the Bush v. Gore dispute, which revolved around an election recount in Florida. In 2000, the question was over one state that was going to determine the outcome of the presidential election where the margin of votes was in the five to 600 range. In 2020, we're experiencing a situation in which there are multiple states um, that are being contested, and yet the vote margin is 10 times or greater, higher than it was in Florida in 2000. So in other words, the likelihood of a recount overturning the result in any of those states is infinitesimally small, and thus unlikely to affect the outcome of the presidential election. So comparing the 2020 election to the situation in 2000 might not be fair. But the transition process is being delayed nonetheless, and that's starting to raise some issues around national security. Because of that dispute in 2000, George W. Bush's transition, including his national security team, was delayed. And the 9-11 Commission report found that that delay left the administration less prepared to deal with the September 11th terror attacks. Currently, President Trump is barring Biden from getting the classified security briefings that presidents-elect normally receive to help them understand the threats the nation is currently facing. And a number of officials, including some Republican senators, say that regardless of the dispute over election results, Biden should really be in those meetings. An administration, when they are new, they don't have time to learn on the job. They have to be ready on day one. That means 12.01 p.m. on January 20th on Inauguration Day to respond to anything that might come their way. The Biden team is doing everything they can to prepare, but there's no substitute for being able to actually have the full access that they need to the agencies and the security briefings, which don't just cover intelligence, foreign intelligence, but they also cover pandemic response. Even without the GSA ascertaining the election results or President Trump letting Biden receive intel briefings, Team Biden has been making as many moves as it can, including unveiling the members of a new COVID-19 task force, taking phone calls with world leaders and even the Pope. And this week, Biden had his own security briefing, speaking with former defense and intelligence experts. But still, that's only a fraction of what needs to be done. And the issues at stake wait for no one. Having an effective response to the pandemic and being prepared to meet whatever challenges face the United States on day one and in the days to come will require a full team of qualified, capable people in place as soon as possible. That work has to start now, particularly because the Senate confirmation process takes a long time. To keep tabs on all things presidential transition in the days to come, make sure you subscribe to our morning newsletter, The Daily Skim, at theskim.com. By now, you probably know Amazon is the place to go to buy a super bright light to illuminate a rooftop ballet performance. P.S. That's Amazon's big holiday TV ad this year. 
Ah, the capitalistic goosebumps. But this week, the world's largest online retailer made headlines by entering a brand new and very lucrative market. Amazon is about to shake up the drugstore industry. Now they are launching a full online pharmacy as of today. The service lets users buy their medications on their phones or other devices and have them delivered to their doorsteps in a couple of days. Amazon Pharmacy isn't a complete surprise. A few years ago, Amazon bought the online pharmacy company PillPack. And since then, it's been pretty clear Amazon was going to do something big. But maybe not this big. It is definitely a milestone. That's Dr. Fadia Shia. She's the director of the Center on Drugs and Public Policy at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy and says Amazon launching its pharmacy in 45 states right out of the gate is huge. And so is Amazon already having a system for doctors to send in their prescriptions and having relationships with most insurers all lined up. Shia says the timing of this launch also couldn't have come at a better time. It is coinciding with the customer's affinity to wanting to do things remotely and perhaps the pharmacy being less accessible to consumers because of the pandemic. So this is why it took it a little bit by surprise and by storm. So what impact is Amazon's big news having on the economy? Well, the stock prices for companies like CVS and Walgreens haven't exactly had the best week. The same is true for local, family-owned pharmacies, which were already a dying breed in the U.S. So good news for Amazon on Wall Street might not be great news on Main Street. Shia thinks an online service like Amazon Pharmacy will be great for people who get regular refills for things like chronic conditions. But she says Amazon Pharmacy isn't about to take over the entire prescription drug business. For instance, it won't sell opioids or some other controlled medications. And when people need advice from a highly trained pharmacist to learn about a new medication, Shia thinks talking things over in person will probably remain a thing. Right now what is happening is that the pharmacists are so pressed with dispensing and filling all the prescriptions that they don't have any time to be actually following up regimens, answering patients' questions when it's appropriate at the pharmacy counter. So maybe we'll all get to know our nice local pharmacist. Meanwhile, Shia thinks bigger chains, the ones whose stocks were tumbling this week, will have a future too. They also offer face-to-face service and are starting to dedicate their square footage to becoming mini health clinics, offering medical services that Amazon can't. And especially as Americans line up to get vaccinated for COVID, the services, staff, and convenience of physical pharmacies are likely to come in handy. And the impact for you? Amazon's big pharmacy announcement focused a lot on convenience. Whether it's through a simplified process for filling your prescription or via speedy shipping, Shia is less convinced it's going to lead to big cost savings. In fact, she thinks a more efficient way of getting your meds can mean people end up getting more medicines that they need, potentially offsetting slightly lower drug prices. But getting the medication you actually need is good news, right? Shia thinks that Amazon tucking your meds into the same package with your impulse purchase telescope, space heater, jade face roller, and fleece line leggings will mean people actually take the meds they need. Especially when it's chronic and it's delivered on time, and it is definitely a continuous regular schedule that cuts down on waste and non-compliance 
I think it will be uh, written after, you know, once all the anxieties and the market redistributes itself, it will be marked as a big success. And speaking of something desperately in need of medical success, over the past few weeks, there have been a number of concerning signs about the state of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. You've probably seen headlines about record-breaking cases or heard about some states announcing new lockdowns. As we head into the holiday-filled final weeks of the year, we wanted to bring you the latest on COVID-19 in the U.S. and clear the noise about what's contributing to the latest surge of infections. So first, where are we right now? Let's start by looking at cases, which paint a pretty bleak picture. The U.S. has the highest number of infections in the world, and cases have hit record levels in recent days. According to the New York Times, over one in 400 Americans are testing positive for COVID-19. And by the way, those numbers aren't just going up because more people are getting tested. Doctors say, look at the rates of positive tests. Those are going up too, meaning the increased number of COVID cases is due to actual illness. How does this compare to the spring? Well, we called up an expert to find out. I am Vanessa Carey. I'm an acting physician at Mass General Hospital. I'm the CEO of C Global Health and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Carey told us that when you look at cases alone, things are much worse than the spring. We are talking significantly higher than in the spring. So we thought of April and May as being the surge in the United States. Our average cases at that time were about 25,000 a day, new cases. We are currently looking at upwards of over, you know, 175,000 cases a day, almost to 200,000 cases. We are rising exponentially and we do not see an end in sight. And in terms of where COVID-19 is spreading now, the answer is pretty much everywhere, including in certain states that were largely spared in the spring. Take Texas which saw fewer than 2,000 new cases per day in March and April, but is now above 10,000. The growing number of infections in every part of the country also means more Americans are being hospitalized than in the spring. Hospitals in the upper Midwest are already saying they're overwhelmed and short-staffed. In some places like North Dakota, ICU beds are almost at capacity, and healthcare workers who are sick are being allowed to mask up and still come in and other hospitals across the U.S. are preparing for things to get worse. So that's where we are. How did we get here? First, politics has a lot to do with it. That's because we've seen an increase in the partisan split over certain COVID-19 precautions, like mask wearing. One of the most important protections has been masks, which have been so politicized that people are not actually seeing it as something fundamental to their well-being and survival, like food and water. They see it as a statement of what they believe in and what is right or what is wrong, which is what has become this big divide in our country. And while certain public health measures like shutdowns of non-essential businesses were somewhat political in the spring, they've only grown to be more political as the pandemic has dragged on. Dr. Carey says that partisan divide is dangerous because it's contributed to the spread of the virus. The second thing that's increasing the spread is something called pandemic fatigue. There's a COVID fatigue that happens and people are just feeling like 
I think as the summers, things got a little bit better, people started to feel like maybe we were getting on top of it and we were on the other side. But it's not the summer anymore. So people are moving events like game nights or bachelorette viewing parties indoors. And even among small groups of people, those indoor gatherings pose a big risk. People are going inside now. And as we go inside, we know the risk of transmission goes up immensely because you don't have the kind of air circulation. And then one of the largest places of transmission in COVID now currently is really in these small indoor social gatherings. It's not necessarily mass spreading events or things like that. Given all that, now is the wrong time to invite one or two more people to your quarantine activities. So if you already got a pod, it could be time to check in and make sure you all agree to the same public health guidelines. And for the people outside your pod, schedule some time to catch up over FaceTime. The more people you put in to your pod, the more you increase your risk. And it's hard, right? I mean, because even if we take the most precautions and we've managed to get through eight months, you still can get COVID. So what does this mean for hospitals and healthcare workers? How are they responding differently now than during the spring? Well, there is some good news here. Doctors have now been treating patients with COVID for months, and they know how to treat it better. They've identified some effective therapeutics and have a better understanding of the virus, which means fewer patients end up dying. Also, some of the strains on hospitals that we saw in the spring, like PPE shortages, are no longer such a big concern. But keep in mind, delivering optimal care to really sick patients requires hospitals to be staffed properly and not too crowded. And Dr. Carey warned us that, given the surge in cases, hospitals are starting to get overwhelmed. Some already are. So the problem is that we have enough ventilators, but you don't have enough staff and you don't have enough people checking the labs and understanding what's happening with people. And you have so many sick people and the patient to staff ratio is not okay. People are gonna die again. Dr. Carey also told us that battling the pandemic for eight months has not only strained hospital resources, but has taken an emotional toll on her and her colleagues. The thing that I feel the most is the fatigue and sadness of my colleagues. I mean, you feel the fear physically when suddenly you get two COVID admissions in one day and you go, oh my God, here we go again. It's the mental fatigue that I feel the most because the day to day we do our jobs, we show up, we care for our patients. But what I think we're all struggling with is how many long hours can we work? How many times can we walk away from our family on the weekend because we've been called in? You know, how many more people do we have to see die of something that we can prevent ourselves from getting? And I think that um, that's a part that is just hard. So COVID-19 is worse than it was in the spring. Political divisions and pandemic fatigue have contributed to a record number of cases in the U.S. and have strained healthcare resources. And all this is happening as we head into the holiday season. So it's time to address the elephant or turkey in the room. Because as cases continue to rise, there are fewer ways to guarantee a safer Thanksgiving. And even the best laid plans, with testing and masks included, aren't foolproof. This is really hard, right? Everybody's going to go into this theory of, well, if I just test and I'm negative, it's fine. And so I think there's a couple really important things 
to remember. One, this is hard. I can't say it's not hard. I have barely seen my parents other than a couple times outside with masks and, and I haven't seen my stepfather now in over a year, right? I mean, I think I feel that pain very much. And I would want nothing more than to have a normal Thanksgiving. But I think the reality of it is, and this is important to remember, is that even if you test negative, you could become positive at any point thereafter. Six hours, eight hours, one day, two days, three days. There's no way to test yourself into a safe scenario. So if you are going to gather, everybody wears a mask. Try to space out where you eat. Take your mask down to eat, but wear a mask the rest of the time, right? There, I don't even, but that's still not ideal. But there, you know, if you're going to commit to doing it because you're going to do it, then I ask you do it as safely as you possibly can. Because the reality is two weeks after Thanksgiving, I will guarantee you these hospital systems will be overwhelmed. If you're reconsidering your holiday plans, know that you're not alone. Many of us at Skim HQ have had to make similar choices about staying home for the holidays. And Dr. Carey says it's a worthwhile sacrifice. There's just a little bit more sacrifice to make. And if we can make the sacrifices now through the holidays, we will help end this pandemic that much faster, get back to normal that much faster. So what's the skim? The U.S. is seeing record-breaking levels of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. And while it feels like we've gotten some good pandemic news recently, especially around vaccines, it's important to note we won't be getting vaccinated for at least a few months. So even as we cheer on scientists working tirelessly on a vaccine, it's not the time to let our guard down. It's worth it to be on the other side of this in a few months, to have survived, to have a vaccine, and to have known that we have been through, yes, a very tough time, but we've made it. So let's say... Maybe you're having second thoughts about that family gathering, and for a good reason. Or maybe you were planning to stay home the whole time, but you just looked at your Thanksgiving grocery list and started panicking. Instead, take a deep breath and stop and smell the gravy. I mean, Thanksgiving, people are overproducing. They're producing too much food, and there's usually days worth of food left over. So you have to scale that back to, okay, you can have two people or four people. That's Zach Brule. He's a chef who owns several restaurants around Cleveland. Brule says the first thing to figure out for Thanksgiving is... Concentrate on the protein, the bird. Two-person turkeys aren't really a thing. And believe it or not, the U.S. kind of has a small turkey shortage right now. Turns out, turkey farmers bred a lot of larger birds thinking Thanksgiving was going to go off like normal. But with people gathering in smaller groups, those big birds are in lower demand, while smaller ones are selling out. Brule says, don't sweat it. So instead of a whole turkey, maybe you get a small turkey breast, or maybe you get a turkey leg, okay? Or get a whole chicken and do a whole chicken. To me, this is an opportunity to do something that's totally different. Why not experiment and do something out of the box? As for sides, everyone's got their favorites, and thankfully, most of them can be made in advance. Brule also says, if you normally find yourself in a Thanksgiving food coma, 
2020 might be the year to dial things back and let seasonal veggies actually be veggies. The meal doesn't have to be this ultra-rich, over-the-top meal. You can still serve everything that you would serve before, but serve it in a different fashion. So roast the vegetables instead of boiling them and pureeing them and adding butter and cream to them. Roast them. Another perk, this is a lot easier. Cut them into planks, toss them individually with a little olive oil and salt and pepper, and then you can use different spices with each one. Put them in a high, high oven, 450 degree oven, and roast them till they're almost caramelized. It's a great way to eat. Oh, and one upside of not needing to drive to your aunt's house or making a last minute run to the store this year, enjoying a glass or two or three or four (laughs) of wine that suits the meal. Brule says he's partial to more acidic wines, which cleanse your palate and offer a refreshing contrast to heavy dishes. For whites, think Riesling or Gruner Veltliner, which is from Austria. And when you're done, you can upcycle the tall, skinny green bottle as a vase or some other pretty holiday home decor. And as for red, Brule says Pinot Noir is hard to beat. Cheers. Oh, and if the idea of prepping side dishes in the days leading up to Thanksgiving still sounds overwhelming, we've left a link in our show notes to a one-pan, one-pot Thanksgiving dinner you can whip up in three hours. And remember, with any luck, all these 2020 disruptions to the way we normally celebrate are temporary. And hopefully the whole fam will be back to making 18 side dishes and falling asleep together in front of a football game again in 2021. What we're doing, we're doing so that we can be together next year. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>